0: listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on Acts of the Apostles. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. Dr. George will be covering chapter 15 and chapter 16, which include the following three topics. The Council of Jerusalem, second, the Holy Spirit Guides Us, And third, they sang hymns of praise in chains. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org, along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. And now, here is Dr. George covering the Council of Jerusalem.
1: Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Chapter 15 of Acts of the Apostles contains the controversy that begins at Antioch and that is carried down into the city of Jerusalem where the apostles and elders decide to convene, where they assemble to meet in what is actually the first council of the church. This controversy concerns the matter of circumcision and the Gentiles. We recall that circumcision was the sign of the covenant, the sign given to Abraham, the sign spoken of in the law of Moses, a sign that was very important, that was critical, that was necessary for the Jews. Now that Christ has come and fulfilled the old covenant and fulfilled the old law, The law of Christ supersedes all that went before it because it is now fulfilled in Christ. And we have a new law, a new covenant, a new testament. And so it took a while for the Jews to come to terms with this, to understand it. Because after all, the law, all that the prophets had spoke, the identity of them as a people of God was so deeply ingrained in them that it was difficult for them to make that transition. They needed the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit and they needed the strength of the Holy Spirit to do this. And all this, of course, is tied to Christ sending the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. The Apostles now understand fully the mysteries of Christ. They understand that everything in the Old Covenant was fulfilled and that now we have this new law in Christ. But in calling others to salvation, to the gift of salvation, in proclaiming the gospel, it is incumbent upon them to explain this to the Jews, to their brothers and sisters, and to help them understand. But what has happened is that the Gentiles have started to come into the church. We recall in chapter 10 of Acts of the Apostles, Peter had been sent by the Holy Spirit to Caesarea and the household of Cornelius. And it was a large gathering, not only his whole household and his servants and those who worked with him, but also he invited his neighbors, his friends, his relatives, other people in the city, his extended family, to come because Cornelius, in understanding this profound gift, the Holy Spirit instructed him that Peter was to reveal something of importance, this great gift of salvation. Cornelius wanted absolutely everyone to have this, to share in it, to hear the good news. But after the Gentiles begin to come into the church in large numbers, this controversy arises having to do with circumcision. And the Jews, who do not fully understand the mystery yet, are wondering why it is that they still circumcise their children their male babies but that the gentiles are not held to the same law and so we begin chapter 15 with saint luke writing some men came down from judea and taught the brothers they come down from judea there is a sense that in scripture when we speak of judea or jerusalem there is always a movement of up to jerusalem even though the sojourners may be traveling from north to south. Scripture always speaks of going up to Jerusalem and going down to, in this case, Antioch. So some men came down from Judea to Antioch and taught the brothers, unless you have yourself circumcised in the tradition of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, this is highly problematic because the apostles understand certainly paul and barnabas do that salvation comes through faith in jesus christ the doctrine of justification by faith is already being hammered out and understood in these early days the church the people are being brought to a deeper understanding of this gift of salvation which god has revealed paul of course stands against this he says no Paul understands now that no one can merit salvation. No one can do works that bring about his or her justification. Only God can justify. God gives to us as pure gift his own righteousness, which is the Son, the Just One, the Right One. So this led, St. Luke tells us, to a a great disagreement. And they had a long argument in Antioch. And it is finally decided that Paul and Barnabas should go up to Jerusalem and discuss the question with the apostles and elders. Now the apostles are, of course, the twelve. Matthias has replaced Judas Iscariot. And there are elders, presbyteros, priests, who were being ordained as co-workers in the vineyard of the Lord. And so there is this gathering of all of the rulers of the church in this first council, which is held at Jerusalem. Now, a few words about councils. The church, from the beginning, it is scriptural. The church holds councils when they are necessary to clarify, to discuss, to define the truths of our salvation, what we call doctrines, truths, dogmas. And in almost every instance, the councils, the ecumenical councils, they're councils of the universal church, over which Peter, or the successor to Peter, presides. These councils discuss the issues of the day, the questions of the day, the debates, the things that are causing people to be confused about the mysteries of our salvation and down through the ages following this first council in jerusalem which took place in 49 a.d the church has convened 21 ecumenical councils the last of which was the second vatican council the 21st council held in vatican city and at each of these the church carries on long discussions years in some instances The Second Vatican Council was convened in October of 1962 and lasted all the way to the end, into December of 1965. Now there are councils, for example, the Council of Trent, which took place over a period of many years. But all of the bishops of the Church, and with priests too, present, would gather for a couple of years at a time, and then they would go back to their diocese to shepherd the people and reconvene after another year or two had passed and they continued to do this until all the work of the council had been completed the work of the council then deals basically with important issues touching upon faith and morals and what the apostles do in the church is to interpret to continue to interpret divine revelation for each age of the church There will always be new issues and new questions arising. And so the magisterium of the church, the bishops, in union with the pope, the successor to Peter, decide upon these matters by combing the scriptures, by re-examining divine revelation in light of this new question or this new debate or new problem. They interpret the scriptures and clarify, define, teach in a new way For the people of that particular age, what it is that they need to understand or know. Now, it's also important to point out, in regard to this matter of councils, that there is a hierarchy to the teachings of the church. And the church declares this the dogmatic constitutions of the church are permanent, they are binding, they are universal, they are unchanging. All the truths that touch upon faith and morals would fall into this category. In addition to this, however, the church understands that there are certain liturgical, disciplinary, or devotional traditions, with a small t, that she can impose upon the people in the name of unity, in the name of charity, in the name of peace, in the name of truth. She will do this for a time and place, and there's a reason for it those particular disciplines can change down through the ages. But the principles upon which they are based themselves never change, the underlying principles. And I'll give you an example of this shortly. So this council is convened. The council, the ecumenical councils are all the rulers of the church, the bishops, or in the present case, the magisterium, the successors to the apostles, they're convened, the council must be summoned, must be agreed upon by the Pope, presided over by him, and all of the decrees that come forth from the council, the teachings, must be confirmed by the Pope in each age, in order for that to be lawful and binding. It is important to know this because it is Peter who is the first necessarily to speak, after they hold this long discussion. When St. Luke tells us in verses six and seven that the apostles and elders met to look into the matter and after a long discussion, we have no idea how long this discussion was. It could have been weeks or months, easily. After this long discussion, Peter stood up and addressed them. What Peter says is going to be the teaching. He is going to decree, he is going to declare in summation, the decision of the council concerning this matter of whether the Gentiles should be required to be circumcised. And what he says is this. My brothers, you know perfectly well that in the early days God made his choice among you. The Gentiles were to learn the good news from me and so become believers. It's very important, James will point this out also, that God had ordained that all races, Peoples of all races and all nations come into the church. The church is the convocation or assembly of all God's people. And God, who can read everyone's heart, showed his approval of them, the Gentiles, by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he had to us. He is reminding them of something that they have heard over and over again, no doubt at the council and in the years prior, after the incident at Caesarea. God made no distinction between them and us since he purified their hearts by faith. It is faith by which we are justified. Faith in Jesus Christ. Why do you put God to the test now by imposing on the disciples the very burden that neither our ancestors nor we ourselves were strong enough to support? St. Paul himself will say this over and over again in his letters. Paul, Paul was a Pharisee. And it is members of the Pharisee party, St. Luke tells us, who are creating the greatest dispute in regard to this. Why? Because the Pharisees were very cognizant of the precepts of the law and they strove with all their might and energy to fulfill them with the idea that if God commands A, B, and C, and so on and so forth, there were literally hundreds of precepts, that if they fulfilled them as much as possible, as frequently as possible, as precisely as possible, they could somehow come close to being right in the eyes of God. And what God has to instruct Paul, who will say later in one of his letters, I was a Pharisee and I kept the law better than most kept the law. And yet he uses that to point out that there was nothing he could do to merit the gift of salvation and that no one, because we are not perfect, we have a fallen human nature, We are human beings, weak and finite in ourselves. No one can fulfill a law, God's law, in a way that is perfectly pleasing to him. We would have to be God to do that. Only God can do that, which is why the father sends his son, who is God, and he takes the law upon himself and fulfills it, and then hands over to us the gift that he merits He gives to us that righteousness, which we take upon ourselves, we accept, in baptism. What is justification? The church tells us it is the acceptance of God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. Why do we go to the baptismal font? We go in faith. It is our faith that brings us there. It is through faith that we accept that gift. That is the only work we can do. It's a small work, but it is an important work in God's sight that we use our will to place our faith in Him, to make an act of faith in Him and in His Son. So, Peter is explaining this matter, and they have discussed it, no doubt, in detail in the days and weeks ahead of this final proclamation. He concludes by saying, But we believe that we are saved in the same way as they are. He's saying, we Jews, why do we want to cling to circumcision as a way, a sign of our justification when in fact that is a sign which has passed away with the old covenant? It is still a sign. It's an acceptable sign. The Jews can still circumcise themselves. There's nothing preventing anyone from circumcising themselves or a male child. But If the person does it with the idea that this is what brings salvation to this person or to themselves, therein lies the problem. And so, the Jews can continue to be circumcised, but they have to understand that the grace of salvation does not come through that act. He says it is through the grace of the Lord Jesus. When Peter concludes, St. Luke tells us the entire assembly fell silent. They fell silent. There is nothing more to say. To say any more is to try to attach, to try to put conditions upon something which is pure gift. It's the sheer gratuitousness of the gift of our salvation, as the Church herself says in the Catechism. James is the one who stands up to speak. Next. Now this is not the James who is one of the sons of Zebedee and the brother of John. King Herod had killed James the son of Zebedee, he was already a martyr. There were two apostles who were James, and this would have been the other James, James who is sometimes called the lesser, not because he is a lesser apostle or lesser in holiness, but because he was the younger. The apostles themselves would have had a way of differentiating between the Jameses when they spoke of them. So James the greater is simply James the elder, James the lesser is James the younger. It is this James who is the Bishop of Jerusalem. And as St. Paul will tell us in his letter to the Galatians, Peter, James, and John were understood by all, viewed by all as the pillars of the church. The three were pillars in the church. So James is an important figure in the church, and he stands up and speaks, and he echoes what Peter has just said, recalling to the minds of all the words of the prophet Amos, when he says, Do you remember what the Lord said? I shall return, and that returning, of course, is Christ. I shall return and rebuild the fallen hut of David. I shall make good the gaps in it and restore it. So God is restoring his house in Christ, his son. The Lord goes on to say through the prophet, and then the rest of humanity, all the nations that are called mine will look for the Lord. The Lord had repeatedly, through the prophets, spoken of this gathering of nations that all of humanity would be a people, His own. The Jews understood that God had set them apart. In the beginning of salvation history, He set them apart and He made them a people, His own, in preparation for the Messiah. But in preparation for the Messiah also meant it was in preparation for the fulfillment of God's plan when he would gather all people to himself and make all people his own. It is, after all, God's plan from the beginning, as we have spoken in other lessons. Every human person that God creates, he wills to live in communion with him in eternity. And so the church is instituted precisely for that convocation of people, precisely for the gathering of nations and so james is reiterating these important words of the prophet of the prophet amos now he concludes by saying my verdict then is this that instead of putting a greater burden on the gentiles instead of making things more difficult for them who turn to god we should merely send them a letter stating these things and he goes on to recommend that the gentiles be advised of avoiding or abstaining from all illicit marriages Illicit relationships, fornication would have fallen under this. Because it's an opportunity to teach the Gentiles how to live according to the law of Christ. Although the Mosaic law had been superseded by the law of Christ, the principles, the truths of divine revelation in the Old Covenant remain so, they remain true because they're divine revelation. But now they are fulfilled in a higher way. Christ. Christ does not abolish the Ten Commandments. He puts them on their truest footing. He gives them their definitive interpretation. He tells us how to live the commandments fully and perfectly. And by giving us his spirit, he gives us the power to actually do so. That's what the whole journey in holiness is about. It is for this reason that the Beatitudes are really the perfect form of living the Ten Commandments. The Beatitudes are this, but we need the Spirit of Christ to do so. Now, when James advises them to obey certain of the laws, abstaining from illicit unions, and of course to abstain from anything polluted by idols, this is not something that is so much concern nowadays, but it certainly was of concern in the first century. Why? because the world was still largely pagan, and there were many temples in all of the cities and even in some of the smaller towns. St. Paul addresses this in his first letter to the Corinthians, because the Christians become concerned, especially the Jewish converts to Christianity, who already were concerned about the foods they eat and how they've been prepared and so on, and now they have this added matter. They go into the marketplace. Of course, Christ had proclaimed all foods clean, but their concern was that many of the foods in the marketplaces were being taken to the temples first. The grains, the fruits, and so on, and even the animals, the flesh, food, was taken into the temples and offered as sacrifice to these false gods. And the people got nervous saying, we go into the marketplace and we're not sure what we can eat, we don't know what's been offered to a false god and what is not. And Saint Paul says, look, we don't have to worry about this, we're Christians. We are free, we live according to the law of Christ. He said, in the first place, all those gods that they're offering these goods to, they don't even exist. Why are we afraid of them? They don't exist. He says, there's one God, the true God. We believe in him. Buy the food and eat it. Don't have qualms of conscience. Don't be scrupulous about this. However, he says, we always have to be prudent in matters of the Christian life. And he said, if somebody hands you some food, as a gift, let us say, and says, this has been offered in so and such a temple to Zeus or Venus, and here's a gift. He said, you cannot accept that. You cannot eat it. Because, he said, you defile the conscience of the other. He said, you prevent the other from entering the church. Because in doing so, you are acknowledging some value in that sacrifice to a false god. So, he said, you have to be prudent. Yes, we are free in everything, but he says we are never free to act contrary to charity, contrary to whatever helps to proclaim the gospel and to build up the body of Christ. So if we are doing something that will become an obstacle to another, he says then, in this case, we cannot do it. Charity forbids us from doing so. This is why he says also in the letter to the Corinthians, to the Jews I made myself as a Jew, In order to win the Jews, to those who are under the law, as though I am under the law, or though I am not. Not under the old law. He says, but in order to win those who are under the law. To the weak, I made myself weak. So by doing this, he makes himself weak. In other words, we do things in deference to the other person. He says, I accommodate myself to all kinds of people in all kinds of different situations. And he says, but I do this so that I might proclaim the Gospel. I do everything for the sake of the Gospel, so that I might share its benefits with others. He wants the opportunity to proclaim the Gospel. So, he will never act contrary to the truth in himself, contrary to the Spirit. He will never be false to himself. But where he can do something, that's why it doesn't matter to Paul whether he eats or drinks. What he does do, though, he does for the sake of the other. Everything is done for the sake of the other.
0: Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study Program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. Up next, Dr. George will be continuing the Council of Jerusalem, and then she will be moving into The Holy Spirit Guides Us. And now, back to Dr. George.
1: Finally, the Gentiles are instructed to avoid eating the meat of strangled animals and blood. Why? It is not that they absolutely couldn't eat this because Jesus had declared all foods clean. To this day, if a Christian wants to eat blood sausage, A Christian can do so. There is nothing sinful in that. But at this particular time in the church, when the Lord was bringing the Gentiles and Jews together as one family, one community, so that they could eat together, live together, celebrate wedding feasts together, the apostles understood that they had to do certain things. They had to give disciplines to the church to guide the people in charity and in peace and unity. The Jews would have been repulsed by the very concept of eating, consuming blood, or consuming an animal that had been strangled. The strangled animal, when an animal is strangled, the blood stays within the flesh. This is why they would slit the throat of the animal. Because God had made it very clear in the beginning that no one was to touch the blood of a living being. Because blood is the sign of life. And God made it clear to the Jews, life belongs to me. Life is my domain. And so to teach them this, he gave them in the law, and the prescriptions of the Mosaic Law, there were very strict rules regarding the fact that they could not consume anything with blood. The Jews would have had a great aversion to it. Very great. It would have taken time to get over this. This is why when the Holy Spirit reveals to Peter that he is to be sent to the Gentiles, he is to go to their home, the home of Cornelius, and live with them for a few days, he lowers down that sheet with all of these animals, of which many Peter saw as profane or unclean. And when the Spirit said, take and eat, he said, I would never take and eat. I could not do this. And the Spirit had to teach him, it's all right. The Lord is doing something new, something higher, something which supersedes the old law. And Peter was docile. He learned this. In charity, in the name of unity and peace, the church gives this discipline in this first century to the Gentiles for the sake of peace and unity in the church, that they are to abstain from eating anything with blood in it. So the decree is officially made. It is set down in writing just as all decrees are for every ecumenical council. The decrees are handed off to all of the apostles and to the elders, the priests, and they take these decrees, the teachings of the council, and they promulgate them wherever they go, teaching the churches what has been decided and therein teaching them the truths of the mystery of our faith. The second and third questions of the lesson, we come into an interesting section at the end of chapter 15 and the beginning of chapter 16. Paul and Barnabas are now in prayer, thinking over the matter. And they are led to understand that they are to embark on a second missionary journey. And so what they say is, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preached the word of the Lord so that we can see how they are doing. They can see how they're doing. They can strengthen them, minister the sacraments to them, preach, proclaim the gospel, baptize new converts, and so forth. Barnabas suggested taking John Mark, and we recall what happens on the first missionary journey, that John Mark leaves them at Pamphylia. So he suggests this, and St. Luke writes that Paul was not in favor of taking along the man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had refused to share in their work perhaps just through the difficulty, the arduous work of the, mission, of the missionary work of the apostles. John Mark leaves them and he goes back, and Paul says, No, I'm not going to have somebody like this traveling with us. A strong argument or a sharp disagreement ensued, and so they parted company. St. John Chrysostom says something very interesting about this passage. He points out that both Paul and Barnabas were being true to what their conscience told them. They both saw the matter in a particular way, but from very different points of view. And so there was this disagreement. And as this father and doctor of the church tells us, the Holy Spirit allows these disagreements in the church frequently enough for varying reasons. God is always bringing about an even greater work in this. He allows people to see things from a different point of view, where both can be acting in good conscience. Now, through the disagreement, each is permitted or allowed to see how people see things from other angles because no one sees the whole picture all the time. In the end, what happens in this particular case is that Paul then chooses Silas. Now, Silas was at the Council of Jerusalem, we are told. He was a prophet in the church. He was highly respected in the church, knowledgeable in the truths of the faith. He chooses Silas to go with him, and Barnabas takes his cousin John Mark to go with him, and they part ways. Barnabas and John Mark go down to the sea, get aboard a ship, and go to the island of Cyprus, which is how the first missionary journey began. And they begin doing the same thing, proclaiming the gospel again, checking on the people in the communities and seeing how they're doing. Paul and Silas, on the other hand, travel by land. They head west-northwest by land, and in the very next section, we find that they get into the area of Lycaonia, where there were the city of Derby and Lystra and so on. We remember those places from the first missionary journey. Now, in the end, the Lord doubles the missionary work of the church. There is a disagreement, and because they part ways, it's a beautiful thing, each of the servants of the Lord, end up in the place where the Lord wants them. And the Lord doubles the work carried out in the church through this disagreement. So what St. John Chrysostom is reminding us is that we can't always initially be so upset when things don't go, according to our own estimation, smoothly or perfectly well. God permits these things for a time in order to bring about many good things. As St. John Chrysostom says, if only all of the divisions of the church were motivated by such great zeal for the gospel. That's really what underlies this whole thing. Both Paul and Barnabas have such zeal for the gospel and they want the gospel to be proclaimed and they want the work to be carried out effectively and with force. That is what is at the core of their argument. Then we discover that Paul and Silas go into the area of Lystra where we now encounter Timothy. Timothy is going to become a traveling companion of Paul's and he eventually will become a bishop of the church. The Timothy to whom Paul writes, the letters we have in the New Testament, is this Timothy from Lystra. He will end up being a successor to the apostles. In a number of places in the New Testament, we already have this revelation of apostolic succession that the apostles appoint and ordain successors to carry on their work at the end of their lives. They know that they're going to die. Titus would be another example. Paul ordains Titus as a bishop to the church. What's interesting in this particular part is that Paul has Timothy circumcised. And we might say, why would he do this after being one of the chief people arguing against circumcision to fulfill the law at the Council of Jerusalem. We have to first remember, it was not unlawful to be circumcised. The Jews could still be circumcised, and the Jews, in fact, were circumcised. Even the Jewish converts to Christianity continued to be circumcised. It was a sign that was meaningful to them, and they understood it, and they were comfortable with it. It was part of their Jewish identity. And in fact, many Christians, probably most Christians, circumcised their male babies to this date. So circumcision was fine. What matters is the reason why he does it. Timothy's mother and grandmother were Jews, as he says. He speaks of Eunice and Lois. His father was Gentile, however. But Timothy is being set apart by the Lord for the Gospel. We go back to that same rule that Paul always did that which would serve in the proclamation of the gospel. There was a great chasm, a widening chasm, between the Jewish converts to Christianity, living in the towns and cities, and those who remained Jewish according to the old tradition, the Mosaic Law. And remember how near and dear it was to St. Paul's heart that the Jews understand the mystery of salvation in Christ. He wanted them to at least give a hearing to the gospel. He wanted them to at least listen to what he or any of the other Jews would have to say. He circumcises Timothy to win a hearing for the gospel. He wants Timothy to go into these Jewish communities and to be viewed as one acceptable because he has been circumcised. But later on, when he's traveling with Titus, he makes clear, he writes this in the letter to the Galatians, He will not have Titus circumcised. Why? Because he's a Gentile of Gentile parents. There was no point to it. It wasn't a matter of importance to the Gentiles in hearing the Gospel or not. And so he doesn't do this. So he, for the sake of the Gospel, he has Timothy then circumcised. Now, as they continue to travel, they are going west-northwest. They are going through Phrygia and the Galatian country. This is where he establishes a church in Galatia. We notice that the Holy Spirit speaks to him very clearly. If they move one direction, the Holy Spirit will say, Don't go there, or the Holy Spirit will prompt them to go in another direction. He says they have been told by the Holy Spirit not to preach the word in Asia. So they do not go down into Asia, but instead they turn and move upward, more northwest. When they reach the frontier of Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia. Bithynia would have been north and northeast, that direction. But the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. So they went through Mysia and came down to Troas. And then one night Paul has a vision and someone from Macedonia, a Macedonian, appeared and kept urging him to come across the sea to Macedonia. Come across to Macedonia and help us. And once Paul has seen the vision, we, he says that we is a reference to St. Luke. He's part of the traveling party now. We went across to Macedonia. This is the first time as the Church Fathers tell us that the Gospel is proclaimed on the shores of Europe. By going into Macedonia, which would have been the territory to the north of Greece, the Gospel is now brought to Europe. But the question is this interesting thing about the Holy Spirit, the guidance and the prompting and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God is revealing that He is always guiding His missionary church, and not only His missionary church, His missionary servants, we all are prompted, guided, and inspired by the Holy Spirit in much the same way. We might respond by saying, but Paul saw visions, and he heard voices, and Jesus appeared to him, and the Holy Spirit spoke to the apostles. True, but we have to remember that it's a rule deep in the spiritual tradition of the church. It is this, God does not use miraculous or extraordinary means wherever ordinary and natural means are available to Him. God, who created the world, has great respect for the created order. And He works with us, by and large, in the created order, through natural things. He uses the miraculous or extraordinary when He Himself knows He should resort to it, or when it's something of of great importance, a matter of great importance, This means, then, that God is speaking to us in ordinary and natural ways all the time, all throughout our day, all throughout our lifetime. We have to learn how to hear the Holy Spirit. We have to learn how to discern the promptings and inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit, something that we cannot do without prayer. As the Church tells us, prayer is necessary for discernment. And beyond that, we don't always have the clarity that we want, and so the Church advises that we find a spiritual director, we find a priest, that we seek the advice of a person who is knowledgeable and experienced in the holy things. Someone who understands Revelation, someone who is a prayer, himself or herself. Someone who can hear, who is trained, who has been trained by the Lord himself in hearing The Holy Spirit and discerning what the Holy Spirit is saying. Once we understand this, we begin to see that God's providence is guiding us in everything. God already knows that we can't possibly understand precisely the course we are supposed to take. Nevertheless, in our being collaborators with Him, we think things through, we decide upon things, and we embark on a certain course. We can be sure that if it is a course God does not want us to follow he himself will stop us just as he stops paul and silas god will prevent it now we may see his preventing as something quite ordinary and natural the weather prevented us from getting as far as that city that particular day but god works remember through the natural kinds of things to bring about his will he will not allow His faithful servants to get something wrong, especially when it's something important in our lives or in the work for the church. He guides us. He leads us. He is constantly doing this all day long. Which is why the saints look at everything that happens in their day and in their lives as coming from divine providence. Whether it's something that seems good or successful, or something that didn't turn out well and it seemed to be a catastrophe, Everything they understand is coming from the hand of God. And in this lies that spiritual truth of our need to surrender to divine providence, trustful surrender to divine providence and everything. When we surrender in trust, we surrender in faith. We have faith that God is guiding us and that he will turn to good absolutely everything that happens. So, God is revealing this throughout Scripture over and over again throughout the Old and New Testament. His servants are being guided and led, sometimes through extraordinary and miraculous means, but very frequently also through seemingly ordinary and natural means, and yet God is in the midst of all of these things.
0: Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through Acts of the Apostles from Knowing the Scriptures Bible study program. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering They Sang Hymns of Praise in Chains. And now, back to Dr. George.
1: Now, Paul and Silas enter into Philippi. Philippi is in Macedonia. And Macedonia was a Roman colony whose capital was Thessalonica. And we discover, of course, that Paul, in his second missionary journey, will establish a church in Thessalonica and also a church in Philippi. Now, in his travels, they come across a particular slave girl, verse 16 of chapter 16, who was a soothsayer. She was possessed by a demon, and her masters, those who owned her, used her for telling the future through the demon because she was possessed. We must keep in mind that the devil does not know the future. But the devil can present things in such a way that it appears that he knows the future. The devil knows the present and the past very well, better than we can remember them. And he's really an excellent statistician in the sense that he understands the Law of Averages and he knows our fallen nature. He has been studying each of us all of our life long. He knows the kinds of things that get us to stumble more than other kinds of things, other places where we are stronger in our life. Based on these things, he can, in a sense, foretell the future, even though he doesn't know it at all. But he can be right many of the times. So we are, people are amazed by this. But in fact, God alone knows the future. Now this girl who is possessed by a demon is used by her masters to make a lot of money because she goes around telling people the future. And she had been following Paul and Silas for many days shouting, here are the servants of the Most High God. They have come to tell you how to be saved. Now in a sense we can say, well, she is speaking the truth because those words are true. Satan has no problem with speaking a truth if by proclaiming that truth he can get someone to fall, someone to stumble, someone to to be destroyed by going down into the, the deep black pit. He has no problem telling a number of truths. He uses this to try to thwart God's plan, to try to prevent the work of God being done. We have to recall that Satan quotes. The word of God to Jesus in the desert. He uses God's own word against God. Satan cannot proclaim the gospel. Satan cannot proclaim the word of God, not in truth and spirit. There's always something sinister going on. There's something malicious. There is a malicious intent behind it. He has got evil In mind when he proclaims a truth. Think of how, in our own day and age, on the outside walls of abortion facilities, you can see posters or you can see people, picketers who are promoting abortion, carrying signs saying things like this Jesus loves women. Jesus wants all women to be free. Jesus cares about the dignity of women. Are those things true? Absolutely. Do they proclaim the gospel? No. They are lies from the evil one. Now, just as this poor slave girl is used by the devil to proclaim these words, people who are ignorant of the gospel, of the meaning of divine revelation, can proclaim these kinds of things as their arguments. It's a defense for the wickedness, the sinful things that are being carried out. Not only are they deluded, because Satan is only too eager to hand over these nice little phrases that sound good and we're familiar with, but they entrap the people who hear them because they do sound as if the Spirit is speaking in them it's very insidious it's something very sinister well here is this girl announcing that in their midst are these servants of the most high god that's true and that they have come to tell you how to be saved that's absolutely true but it's a trap there is also paul and silas certainly hear this there is mockery there is a quiet a hidden or veiled kind of contempt in these words. Paul hears this. Paul knows it's it's the voice of the devil. Behind this, even though he's using the mouth of the girl to speak these words, St. Luke writes, she did this day after day until Paul was exasperated and turned around and said to the spirit, I order you in the name of Jesus Christ to leave that woman. The spirit went out of her then and there. Now the masters are angry because they don't have the girl to earn a lot of money anymore. And so what they do is they go to the magistrates, the Roman magistrates in the city. They complain that they, Paul and Silas, have been causing a disturbance in the city. And they go on to say they are Jews and they are advocating practices which is unlawful for us as Romans to accept or follow. There were very strict laws in the Roman Empire prohibiting anyone of a religion foreign to the religions of the gods and temples of the Roman Empire prohibiting them from trying to proselytize other people. The Roman Empire permitted Jews to live in their colonies, but they could not proselytize. They had to live sort of a, a hidden, silent life. They could not do this. Well, the magistrates of the girl are using this argument that they are breaking the Roman law. So the magistrates who have been put there by the Roman Empire to see to it that the laws are obeyed, then take Paul and Silas, they strip them, they severely flog them, they take them and chain them up in an inner prison and put their feet in the stocks. Now, how do they respond? Again, this is another one of these beautiful imprisonment narratives in Acts of the Apostles. Through the night, in the middle of the night, St. Luke writes, Paul and Silas were doing what? Praying and singing praises to God. Now you see, they are proclaiming the Gospel in the most eloquent and powerful way they know how to in this particular instance. We have to keep in mind that praise, as the Church tells us, is that form of prayer which recognizes most immediately that God is God. That's what praise is in all situations, saying that God is God. It lauds God for His own sake and gives him glory, quite beyond what he does simply because he is. What is God doing in this instance? Well, he has allowed Paul and Silas to be stripped, beaten, and put in prison. They are praising God. It's like the stories we hear to this day of the martyrs who marched into the Colosseum, the Roman Colosseum, not many years after this singing hymns of praise to God, knowing they were about to be torn apart by the beasts in the Colosseum. They proclaimed the gospel eloquently in that situation. Now here, Paul and Silas are singing songs. It seems like such a gentle thing, soft thing to do in the midst of this scene, but it shakes the prison to its very foundations, breaking open the doors, breaking the chains off of the prisoners, freeing absolutely everyone in the prison. It wakes up the jailer, the one in charge of the prison. He comes running in, and when he sees what's happened, he is about to commit suicide. Because, of course, that's what happened to the jailer. If his prisoners were able to get free of him, he was then put to death by the Roman Empire for not doing his job. And he presumed that all the prisoners had escaped. Paul, who is free in the law of Christ, doesn't matter to Paul if he's imprisoned or if he's free. He wants to be wherever the Lord wants him to be. Paul says, don't worry, we're here. We're not leaving. We're not going anywhere. He would not leave knowing that it would cost the jailer his life. He's not concerned about the imprisonment. What he's concerned about is proclaiming the gospel. And what St. Luke writes next, while it's literally true, the events of what happened next, this instance This scene is like so many others in scripture where we read it almost like an allegory. Everything has a spiritual meaning, another meaning. So the jailer called for lights. He is calling for the light of Christ. He may not fully recognize it, but God permits this to be part of what happens and part of divine revelation, which is recorded. He wants the light. He needs the light. He calls for lights and the light he will end up receiving is Christ. He rushed himself in, and what does he do? He throws himself trembling at the feet of Paul and Silas. Who do we expect to be trembling and fearful and begging for his life? Paul and Silas. But it's the jailer who is trembling and fearing, and who throws himself at the feet of the prisoners, and he begs for his life. What he is begging for is life in Christ, of course. He says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? There's something very deep and profound going on here. They tell him, become a believer in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your household too. And then they preach the word of the Lord to him and to all his household. As late as it was, he took them and washed their wounds. He desires cleansing and in turn he is given baptism there with all his household. Afterwards, he took them into his house. He gave them a meal in his hunger for the Lord. In his hunger for salvation, he feeds the apostles of the Lord and the whole household, and they celebrated their conversion to belief in God. There's even a touch of this in Christ's teaching on the Last Judgment when he talks about giving something to drink to the thirsty, some food to the hungry, and so on. That in our hunger for God, in our thirst for God, in our desire for the light, what we figure out to do is to turn and bring to another, although it is in a concrete kind of way, we bring to another something which is representative of what we ourselves desire. So, in his desiring, for example, to be clothed with the dignity of Christ, remember that Paul and Silas had been stripped, he clothes them. In wanting to be cleansed, and to be made whole, to be healed, he washes their wounds He does for them the thing that He desires, which shows that the Holy Spirit is present in the scene and in His heart already, paving the way, opening the way for baptism and for the life of holiness. So, the whole household, again, it's not the first time we've encountered this in Acts of the Apostles. We just had earlier in chapter 16 a similar scene where Lydia, in encountering the apostles, asked that her household be baptized, receive the faith. The church tells us that, and based upon these various events in Acts of the Apostles, that the practice of infant baptism is an immemorial tradition of the church. Immemorial meaning it goes back as far as the memory of the church goes, to the church's very beginnings. Sometimes Christian denominations believe that that children should not be baptized, that we should wait until they grow up, until they're young adults, and they can understand baptism and choose it for themselves. But that is to misunderstand the fact that baptism is pure gift, that the sheer gratuitousness of the salvation of God is granted to us in this gift of baptism. It doesn't make sense. It's contradictory that many of these same people, not understanding what they're doing, will give to their children all the other things they need for life. They don't wait for their babies to understand the need for food and to ask for it before feeding them. They don't wait for them to understand the need to be clean and for them to ask for it before they bathe them. They give them food. They give them drink. They bathe them. They give them medicine when they're sick. They teach them. They teach them how to speak. They teach them about the truths of life. They educate them. They give them all of these things knowing that fullness of life depends upon them and yet they withhold from them that which is most necessary to the fullness of life which is the sacrament of baptism so there's this beautiful teaching in the church with regard to infant baptism we must remember what jesus says let the little children come to me let the little children come to me eternal life is for all of us Age." Intelligence, acts of the will, they are not necessary. It is faith. It is an act of faith. And parents bring their children to the baptismal font in faith. In faith that baptism is that gift that God has given us in His Son. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and other material can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue Acts of the Apostles. Dr. George will be covering Chapter 17 and chapter 18, which include the following three topics. They studied the scriptures every day. Second, Paul proclaims Christ to the philosophers. And third, Apollos' faith and zeal for God's word. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church.